Well, good morning uh, again. I have the, the privilege today of uh, being able to share from the Word of God with you. Uh, I feel like we've already done that uh, together today, both in the reading uh, of Scripture verbatim and then rejoicing around themes that are prevalent all throughout Scripture. Um, I'm happy to fill in for those reasons, but also to give uh, Bryce a break uh, a bit this week. Uh, he's been uh, working a lot, and then, of course, as most of you probably know, uh, Mr. Bruce, uh, Bryce's father, had uh, surgery this week on his face for uh, some melanoma. Um, and so keep Mr. Bruce in your prayers as he recovers uh, from that. And thank you to everyone who showed uh, your love uh, to, to Bruce and Deborah uh, during this time. Continue to do that. Because um, that's we're called to walk together uh, like that and to pour love out on each other, um, particularly in times like this uh, for Mr. Bruce. So, um, but but I'm I'm happy to be able to to give you that that break, Bryce. Uh, and I and again I'm happy to be able to share God's word with you today, as we're going to see uh, together today. Uh, the proclamation of the word of God has always been a central part of the gathering of God's people and the corporate worship of God's people. Um, and so it's, in some sense, one of the highest privileges to be able to share with you from the Word of God um, because the historical precedent for God's people doing this uh, extends back uh, almost to the beginning. Um, and so we're going to do that together today. We're going we're gonna to look at God's Word together, hopefully understand what it means together, uh, and then hopefully go forth together to let God's Word shape the way that we live our lives in the pursuit of God's glory and the proclamation of His gospel. Um, so hopefully uh, God's Word will do its transforming work in our hearts as we study it together today. Today uh, we arrive at uh, Exodus 24, which is really the first narrative portion of the book of Exodus that we've seen in a while on our journey through this book. In fact, uh, since October, uh, with the exception of the few weeks that we uh, took off Exodus uh, for Advent, um, our study of Exodus has been examining what God told Moses uh, on Mount Sinai. And so we looked at, of course, the Ten Commandments, and we did one per week. Uh, and then we looked at the subsequent laws uh, that God gave to Moses for God's people that give sort of real-life application for the Ten Commandments. And so there's sort of, sort of case law for what to do in this particular situation, how to apply the commandment to, uh, to real life. And, and so today, we kind of get back to the story part of, of Exodus. Uh, and we have the opportunity today to see how God's people received all what God had been telling Moses when Moses was up on top of the mountain, uh, the mountain communicating uh, with God there. And so, a quick word about uh, where we're headed both today and then after uh, today. We're, we're probably going to wrap up our uh, Exodus series uh, around the end of May. Uh, so we've got a, a couple of months left. Um, and today, we're going to look at the covenant that God made with his people. And in particular, how God confirmed or sealed or ratified that covenant with his people in Exodus 24. Uh, then next week, we're actually not going to go, unless Bryce uh, does, a, does a change on me that I'm not aware of, uh, we're actually not going to go to Exodus 25 next week. We're going to skip over to, I believe, uh, chapter 32 
um, even though Libby's upset about that. Uh, Exodus chapters 25 through 31, uh, we're, we're not going to dwell um, on those. Um, they are, are certainly God-breathed and edifying and helpful uh, passages. But, um, but basically, in those six chapters that we're going to skip, um, they lay out all the specifications God gives for building the Ark of the Covenant, for building the table for bread, for, uh, the golden lampstand, the tabernacle, bronze altar, the court of the tabernacle, the oil for the lamp, the priest, sac- uh, excuse me, the priest garments, how to anoint the priest, how to conduct the sacrifices, and much more. Uh, so that's just the little subheadings uh, in, in your Bible, probably, of those six chapters. There's a lot in there um, that we're not going to dwell on, unfortunately. And while there's certainly much to be learned from the chapters that we're going to skip over, honestly, it can get a bit cumbersome for a study like this, for a sermon series uh, through the book of Exodus. Because they go, if you've ever read them before, you know that those chapters go into very long and very specific details for what God requires, which... Is, is excellent, but it could get somewhat cumbersome on, on Sunday mornings. So the Cliff's Notes uh, version of what we're going to skip uh, after this week for the, uh, the, those six chapters we're going to skip is simply this. Jesus, okay? It's all Jesus. Every bit of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system and the blood of the goats and the lambs and the altar and the priest and the lampstand and all that good stuff, it's all Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. Um, and so, uh, if, if read it, study it, uh, just remember that it's all pointing us to the great high priest, the once-for-all sacrifice that Hebrews tell, told us about that we just read a moment ago, the mediator of the new covenant, whose sacrifice on the cross made it possible for us to enter into the presence of God by his atoning blood. Um, so it's all Jesus, and hopefully today, too, will be all Jesus. Uh, speaking of the atoning blood, we've sung a lot today about uh, blood, and that's because today's passage teaches us that it is only by blood that we are able to come into the holy and glorious and righteous presence of an almighty God. So uh, really thinking about what the blood does for us and looking at Exodus chapter 24, we're given a model for what biblical worship is supposed to look like. And so today we're going to look at covenantal worship. As God confirms his covenant with his people, how does that shape their response and their worship? So we're going to read uh, Exodus chapter 24 together. The whole thing, it's uh, you know, 1 through 18, but it's the whole chapter. Uh, Exodus chapter 24, if you uh, have a holy book or a holy app, open it to Exodus 24. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Then he, that's God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. 
And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. Right. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under, under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. <clears throat> so Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that shows us clearly your glory, your holiness, your goodness, and your grace. And Lord, as Bryce has, has said to you so many times as we've gone through this book, Lord, if all we knew about you was your goodness and your grace, that would be enough. God, thank you that uh, what you demand is righteousness, for you are righteousness, and there is no compromise in your character. And God, though we can't offer it, Lord, you make a way for it to be offered on our behalf through the blood that cleanses us, that makes, us pos makes it possible for us to see you. God, as we uh, encounter what that means today, would you renew our uh, affection for you? Lord, our wondering what you have done for us. God, and may it propel us out to proclaim the good news that you save through your Son. Lord, may uh, you give me an unusual ability to communicate your gospel effectively today. Lord, and as we look at your word, may you use it to transform hearts by your, uh, the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So Exodus 24, uh, again, we're back in the narrative portion of this book. And uh, if you're following the narrative, it gets sort of confusing uh, in this chapter because uh, there are multiple mentions of Moses and others uh, in this chapter and in previous chapters we looked at going up the mountain and then at some point obviously coming back down the mountain. Um, and so essentially this chapter that we're looking at today, Exodus 24, gives us two different scenes in this story. 
Now, the first scene is sort of summarized for you at the beginning. And the first scene is about Moses and his brother Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who are later going to are going to be struck dead by God for offering uh, what the Bible calls strange fire and appropriate sacrifices to God. But that's another sermon. Um, uh, so those four guys and then the 70 elders uh, going up the mountain. That's the first scene. Now, let's talk a second about the elders here. Uh, you may recall, or you may not, uh, back in September, uh, I think of the last Exodus sermon I got to preach, uh, from Exodus 18, uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came to see Moses, saw Moses wearing himself out by really being a one-man judicial system for uh, what was probably about two million really whiny Israelites. And Jethro told Moses, uh, b- back in that part of the story, he said, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. The thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. And so Jethro uh, spoke to Moses, basically laid out a governance structure for him so that he could delegate responsibility to other trustworthy men. And that's what Moses did. We saw that in that chapter, and here we sort of see the fruit of that. Those are the elders that we see in chapter 24. And so God then commands uh, 70 elders and four other guys, so 74 men, to come up the mountain in verse 1. Um, and again, that's sort of a summary of what's about to happen. And then in verses 3 through 8, before they go up the mountain, we have the instructions uh, for God's people who aren't going to go up the mountain. Uh, so that's most of them, right? There's like 2 million people, 74 guys are going to go up, and the rest of them are going to stay down. Uh, and then in verse 9, uh, Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders actually go up the mountain to worship God. Now, it doesn't exactly say this, but between verses 11 and 12, uh, obviously Moses comes back down the mountain because then later on God calls him back up the mountain. So we know that he's, that he's come down. And this time he goes up with Joshua. And he knows it's going to be a while because uh, he even temporarily delegates his authority to Aaron and her, which, as it turns out, was a terrible decision, as we're going to see uh, next week, uh, I, I believe. Um, so we won't get into why that was a bad decision to delegate that authority specifically to Aaron. But for, the, uh, for this time, uh, it says Moses was on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And if you're familiar with Scripture, you know that's a pretty common phrase we see in Scripture. Forty days and forty nights. Uh, that's the phrase used to describe how long it rained when Noah and his family and all the animals were on the ark. That's the phrase used to describe uh, when the prophet Elijah was fleeing Jezebel and the Lord had provided food for him in the wilderness. Um, it says he was there for forty days and forty nights. And then also when Jesus uh, went and fasted in the wilderness before Satan tempted him, uh, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, and so when we see uh, that phrase, uh, it, it certainly could be 40 actual days and 40 actual nights. But uh, it also seems to be that it, it, it's possibly a figure of speech that really means like a few weeks, a month or so. Um, it may or may not necessarily mean 40 actual days and 40 actual nights, uh, although it might. I see, I see the eyebrow there. Uh, and so, so either way, we know he was up there for a while. He knew he was going to be up there a while, a month or so, a few weeks, or 40 days and 40 nights, whatever, uh, whatever makes you happy there. So I want to spend most of this morning in the first scene of Exodus chapter 24. 
Because as I've already mentioned, this chapter gives us a biblical pattern and what is probably the first biblical pattern for corporate worship. And as your worship pastor, it's important to me to model worship at Vintage after worship in the Bible. And we speak a lot about worship uh, here at Vintage Church. And of course, even one of our core values is that to we, we are be, to be a people who worship what? Worship passionately. That's right. But in the Bible, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a passionate worshiper in the Bible? Now, we've seen in the past, in the book of Exodus, times when people, uh, when God's people have sung together. In fact, when they crossed the Red Sea, uh, the Bible says that Moses wrote a song, and he led the people in that song in worship of God. We've also seen how they have feasted together at various times, most notably uh, the Passover feast that they shared together. But I believe this chapter, Exodus 24, is the first record of what we might call a corporate worship gathering, or, or at least a more formal version. When God's people come together to worship, uh, remembering God's covenant. In fact, that's really what worship is. I mean, there's a lot of different definitions out there. But Kevin DeYoung says that fundamentally, worship means taking part in a service of covenant renewal. Okay, so in other words, regular corporate worship like we're doing here today is sort of like a wedding vow renewal service. It's designed to cause God's people to remember and to rejoice in the covenant that God has made with us. And particularly for us, the covenant that we remember is the new covenant in the blood of Christ. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We'll get there in a minute. So what is a covenant? If anybody's made it that far in their catechism at their uh, MC, does, it, does anybody know the, the catechism answer for that? What is a covenant? An agreement between two or more people, that's, or two or more persons, that's right. Most of the time we hear this word covenant in religious context, although not all the time. Um, but in particular, this agreement, this covenantal agreement, uh, is a contractual obligation with specific conditions attached to it. And in a covenant, there are consequences if you break the contract, and there are benefits for keeping the contract. And that's the biblical pattern you see every time a covenant is made. So a covenant then is a special promise with conditions attached to it. And in the Bible, covenants are not to be taken lightly. lightly excuse me. And so therefore, covenants have to be sealed. They have to be ratified. Same way we would do with, with contracts today. Now today, we might uh, get a notary. My mom's a notary. If you ever need a notary, call my mom. There you go, a little shameless plug. Uh, or if you're doing your taxes, you might have to put in that uh, IRS pin that you can never remember, and you have to go to a forgot pin and get it sent to you on TurboTax, or some sort of e-signature or whatever. Um, but in the Bible... Covenants are most often ratified with blood. Not with a notary or a signature, but with blood. And so today, we're going to look at what covenantal worship looks like for the Israelites. And how uh, this biblical model of worship lays the foundation for how we ought to worship. We're going to kind of jump around in this story a little bit to look at different themes here. But I want to pull out four essential elements of covenantal worship 
that are present in this passage and hopefully in our worship of God. The first thing we see very obvious in this passage is the book of the covenant. Now the book of the covenant is mentioned specifically by that phrase three times in this passage. Well, not by that phrase, but yeah. Uh, So first in verse 3, it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So that's the the direct revelation that God gave him at the top of Mount Sinai. And then in verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So the same thing that he had spoken, he then wrote. And then in verse 7, it says Moses took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. So Moses uh, hears the word of the Lord. He comes down from the mountain. He speaks the word of the Lord out loud to God's people. Then he writes down the words of the Lord, and it becomes called the book of the covenant. And then a few verses later, he reads again what he has already written. Now what Moses heard and spoke and wrote and then read is exactly what we've been going through these past couple of months. The Ten Commandments and the subsequent laws that show how to apply the Ten Commandments to our lives. Now we'll get to the response of the people in more detail in just a moment. But it's interesting that when Moses speaks God's commands to God's people, they're like immediately like ready to obey it. And so then, Moses writes it all down. Now, I was was thinking about this and how this is kind of, it's kind of strange. Have you ever had anyone take notes during a conversation that you're having with them? I mean, you might expect that, like, say, in a job interview where they ask you a question and while you're talking, they're jotting down what, you know, what you did right or wrong. But in other contexts, and really even in that context, it can be pretty nerve-wracking to someone, for someone to be writing while you're talking, particularly if you know you're, they're writing what you're talking about. When Lindsay and I went, to, I went through the uh, home study process to become uh, foster parents, which I know Melissa and Jeremy are, are, are working on, um, so they meet with you at your house, uh, and then they meet with you one-on-one, and they ask you probably the most personal questions you've ever been asked in your life. Uh, but the weirdest thing probably about it, the most sort of nerve-wracking thing, is when they come to your house, and you're just like showing them around that, you know, you, you did this, and everything's up to code, the, the foster parent code or whatever. Um, and so you're, you're just making conversation, and they got their legal pad out, you know, and they're like jotting down notes. And, and they, they may stop in the, like mid-sentence and write something down on their, on their legal pad. And you think, what are they writing? You know, like, did I do something wrong? Did I say something wrong? Did like one of my kids come in and they like, you know, had poop on their face or something? I mean, or did, was there some safety violation? You know, so we missed a, a, a outlet cover plug or don't have the right fire extinguishers or something. Uh, and so it's pretty nerve-wracking to have somebody taking, like writing down things uh, while you're talking to them. And so this is kind of, it's probably extra biblical, but this is kind of how I imagine Moses doing. You know, he speaks the words, and they're like, yeah, we're going to obey. And Moses said, you know, okay, are you, you know, you do understand God said do this and don't do that. And the people, they, they're, they're affirmative. They're like, yeah, we're going to do it. And Moses is like, all right, now I'm going to write it down. Are you sure? Are you sure? See, the thing is, Moses 
wasn't trying to get God's people to engage in some sort of like hyped up uh, mob affirmation like, like we're prone to do. Maybe you've been to a concert or a political rally or something where it's like you just agree with whatever they're shouting from the stage because everybody else is. It's like an emotional thing. Yeah, yeah. But Moses is saying to them, no, 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 we, I don't want that. This isn't like, you know, mob obedience because that's not a thing. Moses is saying, look, this, these words that, I'm, that God has spoken to me, that I'm speaking to you, that I'm writing down, this is the eternal word of God. This is God's covenant book. And until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will pass away from this book. See, in ancient times, just like today, for a contract between two parties to be official, a handshake is not good enough, right? It has to be written down. And then after that written down contract is ratified, it doesn't change. The writing of the covenant, the ratification of the covenant, binds its terms and conditions. But aren't we so often like the Israelites? Quick to hear something we like and say, Amen! With enthusiasm. When our emotions run high, you know, maybe we, we felt a really, really good moment in a worship service. Amen. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be obedient. But then when that emotion wanes, so does our enthusiasm for obedience. So then the remedy for that is not to eliminate the emotional high that comes from amening together. Because it's good to have that. But we can't maintain that subjective emotional enthusiasm for God all the time. It's impossible. So the remedy then, true obedience, is building our obedience on the objective and eternal and unchanging written words of God. And so through Moses, God was establishing that his people would not simply rely on oral tradition or a corporate enthusiasm. But God's people would be defined by a book. Not just a book, the book. The book of the covenant. The holy words of God himself. And this wasn't just true for the Israelites. This is always true of God's people. Not only that we were given this book, that we're called to live by this book, but that the central point of our corporate gathering would be the proclamation of this book. See, the public reading of God's Word would become a foundational element of public worship all throughout Scripture and all throughout church history after that. In Deuteronomy 31, the Lord commanded the Israelites through Moses to read the entire law at the end of every seven years, before all Israel in their hearing. Later on in Joshua 8, it says that Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel, and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. Later on, uh, God's word gets lost for a little while. But then it was rediscovered by King Josiah in the temple. And King Josiah uses God's word to bring about reforms for God's people. And he starts those reforms with the public reading of Scripture. 2 Kings 23 says, Then the king, that's King Josiah, sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing 
all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. This is the same exact practice that we see uh, for God's people when they return from exile under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8 says that Ezra read from it, that's God's word, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. So he read the word of God out loud in the, in the city, center of the city for half a day in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. In the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This isn't a pattern that passes away with the Old Covenant. We see it in the New Testament too. In fact, Jesus begins his public ministry by publicly reading the scriptures in the synagogue on the Sabbath day in Luke 4. Then uh, in the, the, the same pattern is present in the New Testament church of which we are a part. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy four thirteen, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And then in the first chapter of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. See, the public out loud reading of Scripture is an essential element of Christian worship for the covenant people of God. Indeed, it's arguably the most foundational element of worship. Because all the other elements of worship, again, as I've said before, are fallible. But God's word is not. It is unchanging. It is objective. It is true. And so every other element of worship comes in response to the word of God. And should be shaped by the word of God. Now scripture has always been a central part of what we do at Vintage Church as it should be for every church that calls themselves a, a church of Christ. Not the church of Christ, but the, you know, the true church. But this uh, scripturally central pattern is one reason that we recently made the reading of the scripture a more specific set-aside piece of our worship service before the sermon so that we can do what God's people have always done. To heed Paul's words to Timothy, to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And that in so doing, we might, that the affections of our heart might be turned towards Scripture. That we might learn to love it. And that the, the words that we say after wouldn't just be something that we say because it's part of the liturgy, but that it would be the cry of our hearts when we hear the Word of God and we cry out, thanks be to God that He has revealed Himself to us. Scripture is central for worship of the one true God. But also we see in this passage, secondly, that blood is central. The blood of the covenant. Now the blood of the covenant has significant implications for how we worship. In fact, this passage, and I tried to go slow enough where you would catch this, is a pretty bloody chapter of Scripture. In verse 5, we see uh, Moses commanding the young men of Israel to offer sacrifices of oxen to God. Which, of course, sacrificing animals was a very bloody affair. And then Moses takes the blood from the oxen, and he puts the blood into bowls, and he throws half the blood on the altar. And then a couple of verses later, he takes the bowls of blood, and he flings it on the people 
of Israel. And he says, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. I don't know why when I read this, the word fling works better for me. Because it says he throws, and then other translations say sprinkles, but we can't talk about sprinkling because we're Baptist. And so, uh, so I, I think of it as, as like a flinging, like, a, like he's flinging paintbrushes on, on people. Now, I must confess, when I first read through this passage, I was kind of weirded out by it. Moses throwing blood on the people. I mean, animal sacrifice is really common in the Old Testament. So I'm kind of used to thinking about that, how bloody it is. But I don't recall, there, there may be other places, I don't recall a lot of places in Scripture where blood is literally like flung on the people. You know, we have the blood of the sacrifices on the altar and, and the throwing, you know, that sort of thing. But the blood is thrown on the people here. Now, I considered uh, doing a really graphic sermon illustration for you today fling a little blood on you to make the point clear. Lindsay talked me out of it, so tell her thank you afterward. Um, but it's kind of weird, right? I mean, it's almost all barbaric sounding that Moses takes this bowl of blood and throws it on God's people. And, and it is, it's weird. But there's a point. You may uh, notice in your Bible, if you're following along this morning, that the heading for Exodus 24 is the covenant confirmed. Now, those kind of headings, of course, and I'm sure you know this, are not part of the words of Scripture. Those are editorial additions to help organize the texts into uh, sections. But that is certainly true of this passage. It's indeed telling us what took place for God to confirm or, or really reaffirm because he's already made the covenant or renew his covenant with his chosen people. Again, it's like a vow renewal uh, service for, uh, for two married people. It's not that they're getting remarried. It's just that they're remembering uh, the vows that they already made, the covenant that they've already promised to each other. And so in the Bible, for a covenant to be properly established, it has to be confirmed. And in most cases in the Bible, blood was a central part of the confirmation of God's covenants with his people. And in fact, uh, if you look at uh, ancient uh, Near East stuff, blood was a part of the covenant for non-religious covenants as well. It's pretty central. So there are many places in Scripture where we see the confirmation or the sealing of a covenant through blood. Uh, The first example is in, uh, well, the first formal example, there's others. In Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he seals that covenant with blood. And in that particularly bloody affair as well, God told Moses to cut in half a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and to lay them out into two rows. So like one half of the animal here, and one half here, one half here, one half here. So you are the halves, right? And then in the middle, there's this owl of blood. And God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham, that he would give uh, the promised land to his offspring, and that his offspring would number the stars and all that. And God sealed that covenant by uh, a symbol of his very presence passing through this isle of blood. And in this case, it was a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that represented the presence of God that, that moved through that isle of blood. And as an aside, uh, if you've ever read that passage, Moses was un- or not, not Moses, Abraham was actually unconscious during that part. Like God told him to do that. There's this, there's this river of blood between the animals. Then he knocks Abraham out, and God is the one who seals the covenant. 
by moving through the blood to a passive and unconscious Abraham. Then, similarly, a couple of chapters later in Genesis 17, God gives Abraham another uh, bloody symbol of covenant. He gives him the sign of circumcision as a confirmation of those who would be identified as his covenant people. And without getting too graphic, uh, we're mostly adults in here, circumcision involves the shedding of blood with the specific purpose of that blood being the sign of the covenant. Then uh, in part of the passage that we looked at this morning that Tony read for us, Hebrews 9, uh, it speaks to the idea of covenants being sealed with blood. It says in uh, verse 18, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. That's what we see, what we're looking at today. Saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, and that's, that's a true statement all throughout the Bible. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So in the same way, when Jesus inaugurates the new covenant, he seals it with his blood. In fact, that's what he said. This is my blood of the covenant. The same phrase that Moses used. When Jesus uses this phrase uh, in, in the Last Supper, when he holds up the cup, he's likening the Christian communion meal to the Old Testament peace offering. Matthew 26 recounts that. It says, He, Jesus, took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, in light of these biblical explanations, Moses throwing the ox blood from the sacrifice on the people becomes a lot less weird. It really becomes something that's beautiful. Because the reasons he does this are the... uh, Excuse me, the reasons for the covenant confirming actions of blood being thrown against the altar and then on the people signify cleansing and atonement. See, the altar is the place that represents God. And so when Moses throws blood on the altar and then that same blood on the people, it's a unification of God and his chosen people. In chapter 19, the Lord had called Israel to keep his covenant, serving as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here God anoints and inaugurates them to live as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The bloody altar meant that God had accepted the sacrifice and that they were now included within his covenant because their sins had been atoned for and they were covered by the blood of the sacrifice. The blood and its benefits were applied to the people, both literally and spiritually, for those who were covered by it. And it's the same with us. See, this scene establishes the eternal truth, that there can be no forgiveness without blood, that the basis for a relationship with God, the ability to come into His presence, though we are wicked and unrighteous, is blood. And this scene, like everything else in Exodus, prepares the way for Jesus, whose atoning blood shed on our behalf makes our union with God possible. 
And so if you get nothing else today, the book and the blood are central to Christian worship. Today we also see uh, that the people responded to what God had said. And so the third element of, of worship that we see outlined for us here is the response of the people to the covenant. Now, God's people have two almost uh, verbatim verbal responses to the book and to the blood of the covenant. Verse 3, after Moses tells them what God has said, the people respond, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then after Moses uh, has the young men make the sacrifice of oxen and reads God's newly written word, they respond again, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Now, even though that wasn't true... Uh, that was a confession of faith. It was a response to the Word of God being proclaimed among them. And again, if we, if, you, if we view this passage as a model for corporate worship, we see that the reading of God's Word is always followed by response to God's Word. Hopefully with a renewed passion to live in obedience to God. This is why we always spend time after the sermon, after the proclamation of the Word of God, giving you time to respond to it before you come forward and participate in the communal meal to give you a time to stop and respond to what you've heard from God's Word, hopefully with a renewed passion for obedience to it. See, God's Word changes us. We cheapen the Word of God if we don't allow ourselves to stop and let it do, let it do its transformative work in our hearts. Now, in this passage, God's people are, are almost too quick to affirm their full affirmation for God's Word and their total submission to it. Yes, yes, we will be obedient to the words that God's spoken. And while their optimism and their enthusiasm seems honorable, it's ironic how quickly they broke their promise. In fact, we know that Moses is up on the mountain learning about the tabernacle and the, all that stuff we're going to skip for 40 days and 40 nights or thereabouts, a month or so. And in fact, Moses comes down the mountain and Aaron has taken everybody's gold and melted it down and made a calf out of it and they're worshiping that. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. Just kidding. 40 days, 40 nights later, we're worshiping altar. I mean, worshiping idols. I won't get ahead. I don't want to steal Bryce's sermon for, for next week. But obviously, worshiping a golden calf is an explicit violation of God's command. This isn't like, ah, they kind of slipped up, backslid into sin. No, no, no. They are literally bowing down to idols 40 days and 40 nights after they, com they commit their full obedience to the Word of God. But notice in verse 11, Moses says, it's the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Not the covenant that you have made with God. Praise God. He is the initiator of the covenant. And his covenant is not based on our enthusiasm or lack thereof to keep it. Because each of us, our hearts are, are idol factories, just like the Israelites. And so God's covenant then is totally based on his sovereign grace that is mighty to save our sin-corrupted souls. When we encounter the Word of God, when we encounter the truth of the atoning blood that it makes us acceptable to God, may we respond with, not, not like the Israelites, yes, I'm going to obey. No, 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 with humility. Thank you, God, that you empower me to obey. We should express our dependence upon God's Spirit who is ever with us to change our hearts and continually shape us more and more into the image of Christ. 
So yes, have enthusiasm, but build your life on the Word of God that His Spirit might transform you so that when your enthusiasm wanes, your passion for obedience doesn't. Lastly, in this passage, we see the glory of the covenant present in the worship of the Israelites. After the book of the covenant is read to God's people, it says the blood is sprinkled or flung or whatever verb you want, and the people respond to the covenant. And then 74 of the Israelites are allowed to ascend the mountain and to behold the glory of the covenant, who is God himself. Now verse 9 uh, tells us that Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons and the 70 elders went up and it says they saw the God of Israel. But it seems contradictory. Verse 2 says only Moses could come near and the people should not come up. But in words later echoed uh, by a rapper, God says to the people, get back, get back. You don't know me like that. But to Moses, he says, come near, which is what Ephesians says of us when we are in Christ. Ephesians 2 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, we've previously discussed, and I'm sure we'll continue to discuss the need for a mediator, but it comes up again and again in Exodus because again and again in Exodus we see Jesus, the once-for-all mediator. Later in Exodus 33, God says, No one may see me and live. 1 John 4, 12 confirms that, says no one has ever seen God. So what do we do about that? It says the elders ascended the mountain and they saw God. Why do you think it says they saw God? If the Bible says no one can see God and live. Well, I'll give you a hint. It's in this passage. It says they saw God, but then it doesn't describe what God looks like. It describes what the pavement under his feet looks like. It says it's like a blue sapphire stone. You know why? Because they, go, they caught a glimpse and they were on their faces before the holy God. Just like Isaiah, the presence of God made them painfully aware of their own unworthiness. And all they could do is hit their faces before a holy God. And then afterward, all they could describe is they say, oh, you saw God? Well, I saw the pavement under his feet. I knew what the floor looked like because that's where I was. See, verse 11 says, he didn't, yet he did not lay his hand on them. Even though they had originally, he had originally said, only Moses could come up. So why were these 74 guys, or the 73 others besides Moses, able to come near and see God? Well, the, the key lies in, in what we've already talked about. The atoning blood that cleansed them. You see, the prospect of beholding God without the blood is your own blood. It's death. And these guys knew it. Yet, through the one who took that death for us, who shed his blood for us, we can see God and live. And not only, not only will God not strike us down, God invites us to a feast. See, verse 11 says, they beheld God and they ate and drank. See, they shared a sacramental meal a symbol of belonging to God's covenant people. Now we too share in the glory of the covenant when we come to this sacramental meal 
Sunday after Sunday. Not only because it's the biblical model, because, but because this sacred feast is the reminder of us that the blood that makes us welcome at the table of the king is a foretaste of the ultimate covenantal meal we will share in together at our greatest covenant renewal service around the table of the great marriage feast of the Lamb, Christ himself. Puritan Richard Baxter said, Nowhere is God so near to man as in Jesus Christ. And nowhere is Christ so familiarly represented to us as in this holy sacrament. See, Jesus, Jesus is the glory of the new covenant. And if we are to draw near to the merciful Father of grace, we must do so through the blood that sprinkles us clean, that washes us whiter than snow, and that invites us into the glory of his presence forevermore. We pray with me. Oh God, we thank you for the blood that cleanses us, that makes us clean and washes us whiter than snow. God, for it is only in the blood of Christ that we have hope. Lord, on our own, we are aliens and strangers and enemies of you. Lord, and to come into your presence on our own would mean sure death because you are perfect and we are not. God, but thank you because of Christ we can look and live. And God, may that define what we do in worship. Lord, may we look at you and what you have done for us and realize that it is the source of life. Lord, and not just uh, the, the... getting us out of the penalty of sin, Lord, but it is the source of the transformed life, the abundant life that is in Christ, Lord, that begins even now. Lord, and if there are those who have never experienced the cleansing power of the blood of Christ and the victory of his resurrection over sin and death, Lord, would you impress the truth of your gospel upon their hearts? Lord, may, may they understand the urgency of salvation God, we thank you for what you have done for us, that you've spoken to us. Lord, that you've given us a model for how to approach you. God, may it inform not just what we do here on Sunday mornings, Lord, but the way we live each and every day. Lord, may we do so in the power of your spirit as we build our lives around your word. In Jesus' name, amen.